Hello and welcome to Fertility Springboard, the podcast series brought to you by Fertility Help Hub. I'm Eloise, founder of Fertility Help Hub, and over the series, I will be bringing you conversations with some of the most influential and inspiring professionals and experts around the world to arm you with useful and empowering thoughts and resources to ease your fertility journey. And don't forget to sign up to the newsletter to make sure you don't miss out on anything. It's packed full of inspiring interviews, resources, discounts and offers, competitions and real life stories. So I'm very pleased to be welcoming my guest today, who's Stephanie Velarkas, all the way from Sydney, Australia, who is an amazing certified dietitian and nutritionist. So hello and good morning, Stephanie. Hi, Eloise. Thanks so much for having me on your podcast. Thank you for coming on. We'd love to hear a little bit about you and your background and perhaps a little bit about what we're going to be covering health-wise today. Yeah, sure thing. So yeah, my name is Stephanie Velakis and I am what you call an accredited practicing dietitian here in Australia as well as a nutritionist. And I work with women and couples who are trying to conceive to improve their fertility through nutrition based on the latest scientific evidence. So my training uh, for those who are interested, uh, involved a undergraduate degree in a Bachelor of Advanced Science in Nutrition and Metabolism. Um, and then I went on to train um, in postgraduate studies in a Master of Nutrition and Dietetics for two years after that. So five years total of study, um, which includes supervised placement and making sure that you can safely deal with all manner of medical conditions and um, nutritional situations and after that you become an accredited practicing dietitian here in Australia which is very similar to um, I believe in the UK it's registered dietitian and similar to the US's registered dietitian Um, and just a little myth buster all dietitians are nutritionists but not all nutritionists are dietitians Um, and so the guarantee is that anyone that's registered with their national body of dietitians has adequate training to be recognised by their government healthcare system. So here in Australia, I'm recognised by the government healthcare system and all private health funds, whereas nutritionists um, might be recognised by private health funds, but not necessarily by the government. Okay. So, yeah. 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 And yeah. did you do all so, your training in Australia, in Sydney? Yes, I did. I went to the University of Sydney and I'm very lucky to actually teach there now, the next generation of dietitians and uh it's really exciting to see so many who are interested in fertility actually now uh so i'm yeah i'm really excited to see the next few years of how much more availability of fertility nutritionists and dietitians there'll be in the in the arena amazing and um what got you into this space like what made you decide to specialize in fertility nutrition yeah i think for me it it was a very roundabout way. It wasn't a very like, I'm going to go out and be a fertility dietitian. I really wanted to help kids, actually. I wanted to be a, a paediatric dietitian and I still am very lucky to 
still have some of that role um, in helping kids with their nutrition and families. Um, and I was always all about like, oh, what if we got in earlier? Like, what if we helped kids with their nutrition so when they grow up to be adults, they can be healthier adults? And then I learned all about the first 1,000 days of life, which spans from preconception, so three to six months before you conceive, mm -hmm. through the pregnancy to your child's second to third birthday. And I was learning about how this time period was absolutely critical from a nutrition and environmental perspective in programming the genes of our future generations of not just even one child, but potentially your grandchildren as well. Wow. And I just thought, wow, you know, like, I, yeah, I can help kids and, and that's great. And I love helping kids and families. But what if I got in even earlier than that? What if we made the, the parents and the adults of those children healthier before they conceive and then ultimately, you know, in, I learned that you could enhance the fact that you could conceive in this way as well, um, have a healthy pregnancy and then be able to pass on those habits to their children um, and raise happy, healthy children as well. So I just saw it being a more full circle mm -hmm. um, and that's what really drew me to it. And I think in combination with that at around that time being in university and a lot of obviously reproductive issues as females in a very female dominated industry that I'm in being a nutrition professional. Um, so many of my friends were getting diagnosed with PCOS mm -hmm. or uh, endo even and uh, um, other conditions that would affect their future fertility. And, and um, yeah, I, I really felt for them. Um, and I thought, Oh gosh, like what can I do to help all these people around mm -hmm. me that are, that are experiencing some, that, that are going to experience some issues conceiving in the near future and how can I set them up earlier for success? Um, and so it was a combination of, you know, family and friends getting diagnosed around me um, and that, I guess, that theoretical understanding that I could potentially impact not one but potentially two generations of, of people by intervening in the preconception time period with nutrition recommendations absolutely and what an amazing way to sort of um help people as you said longer mm. term rather than just for the here and now that's amazing yeah i definitely try and make that really clear to my clients as well like you know even if say this didn't make a difference say that this had no impact on your chances of conception or fertility or anything like that which I know it does. The research says it does. Um, but I say, just say, say you're, you don't believe it or you're not sure. I said, at the end of the day, everything that you learn is a lifelong skill. Mm, um, mm. and that you can, you know, when you do conceive or, um, or adopt or however you come about at growing your family, you can pass those on to your kids. Absolutely. Absolutely. Yeah. So thank you for the introduction. Let's start, shall we, by talking a little bit about PCOS and nutrition mm -hmm. around that um, mm -hmm. and generally nutritional health when you're trying to conceive. I guess I should start a little bit about by prefacing with what PCOS is um, and, you know, who this may apply to. Um, so PCOS stands for polycystic ovary syndrome um, and it affects about 20% of women. Um, of reproductive age and so it's a very common um, condition very common. Um, but it is just 
it's called a syndrome because it's a cluster of symptoms. So the three defining things of PCOS is the first is that you have an irregular cycle. So you're either having lots of um, bleeding or not much bleeding at all. So in the way of periods. The second is that you have high what we call androgen levels or sometimes known as testosterone and that can lead to either some acne or hair growth um, so a lot of women report facial hair or excessive hair on their back or tummy um, or even hair loss can be another symptom or they may not have any symptoms of high androgens just yet and their blood tests show that it's that it's high mm-hmm. and the third um defining feature of PCOS is the actual cysts, which I use little my air quotes for, on um, on the ovaries themselves, which are visible via ultrasound. Now, the reason why I say cysts is they are, in fact, follicles or eggs to be, and there's just a lot of them. So a lot of women will get picked up for PCOS when they are trying to conceive mm-hmm. because they'll go to their GP or their fertility specialist for, you know, their workup. And one of the first things a fertility specialist or your primary care provider will do for you when you go in is do a test called AMH or anti-malarian hormone. And that's just a measure of your ovarian reserve. So how many eggs are kind of left in the bank? Um, And often this is very, not very high, but elevated or above what is expected in women with PCOS. So of those three factors, so irregular cycle, acne, facial hair, androgen-related issues, and um, cysts on ovaries, you need to only have two of three to qualify for a diagnosis of PCOS. So a lot of women will be like, oh, I have cysts on my ovaries, but I don't have any of those things. So I don't, so do I have PCOS or not? Um, so that's that's the defining um diagnostic criteria that we use um, and that needs to be diagnosed by your your doctor um, mm-hmm. or your fertility specialist but mm-hmm. it's good to just raise awareness if something resonates with you to go and talk to your care provider about it and yeah it is one of the leading reasons that people show up at fertility clinics looking for help and it's often because they're simply just not ovulating mm-hmm. um, or their ovulation, their periods are so far apart, their chances of conceiving in a year could be, you know, a quarter or a third of what an average um, woman with a regular cycle would experience. So say, you know, on average, a woman has 12 cycles per year and she ovulates for all of them. She has 12 opportunities to get pregnant in theory, Mm. right? Mm. Um, But if you have PCOS and maybe you're getting a cycle every 90 days, so every three months, you only get four chances per year. So how much longer would it take um, to get pregnant? So that's one aspect to it for sure. And I think it's definitely one of the, the main issues that I see is just it's that irregular period plus or minus those other things that we discussed. Okay. And one more thing, sorry, that um, I know from friends who have um, suffered from the syndrome is weight gain. Is that Mm. something that you find common with these symptoms or something that you think can be helped with diet? Yeah. So um, weight gain and sugar cravings or sweet cravings or carb cravings um, or insulin resistance um, is another thing that tends to come along with PCOS. However, it's not a 
what we call a diagnostic criteria. So just because that's happened doesn't mean you've got PCOS, but it often just comes along. So we think that about 80% roughly of women with PCOS have a struggle with their weight and struggle with insulin resistance in particular. However, in my experience, I find that it's those things can be completely independent. Um, I've had women who have no weight issues at all um, and have PCOS um, as well and have insulin resistance as well. So it's not always perfect science. Um, but I like to think about diet and PCOS and weight as the weight is the side effect of whatever hormone dysfunction is happening in the body. And once we can address the hormone dysfunction through a combination of diet and lifestyle and, you know, medications where necessary, depending on your plan, once we settle that, the weight will fall where it's meant to fall. Okay. So yeah, if it's up, if it's up, if it's down, it's down. So I see it as a byproduct of the syndrome rather mm -hmm. than fix the weight, fix the syndrome. It's, it doesn't really work like that. In fact, we can't really fix the word fix is, I take issue with that word. So um, help, if we help PCOS be better managed, theoretically your weight should also come along with that. So I see it more holistically um, in like I try and be really comprehensive and I try to explain that to my clients as well so that they, they understand that their expectations of themselves can be a little bit reduced. Takes off the, the pressure a little bit, doesn't it? That is right. And I think at the end of the day, you could be completely healthy, perfect bloods um, and, you know, not be at your healthiest weight. And I'm still happy with that going mm -hmm. into a fertility cycle. So absolutely, yeah, I'm sure not every, every professional will agree, but uh, yeah, I've definitely seen it before. So I, I can't, I can't dispute what I've seen. <laughs> of course. So, oh, thank you so much for that background and for explaining a little bit more about the sort of science and the nutri nutrition behind it. Um, are you able to give us a bit of a, some thoughts and tips around how people can fly or manage their diet for this particular mm. syndrome and also potentially some clients you've seen where you can tell us stories, inspiring stories about how things have turned around for them and they've had success mm. thanks to this change. Yeah, for sure. So my favourite approach, and I'm a little bit biased because I'm not sure if your audience can tell by my name, but I am a Greek Australian. Um, but I really like using the Mediterranean diet and um, I say that in the most biased and also unbiased way because there is a lot of evidence to support the Mediterranean diet for fertility um, and some evidence as well emerging for PCOS. So the reason why I really like this approach is it's simple, it's flexible, it's affordable, um, and all those things have been proven in the research um, and it's also effective. So the dietary approach is based around an abundance of a few key foods, um, fruits, vegetables, nuts and seeds legumes and beans and pulses and whole grains so we're talking slow releasing carbohydrates that keep you stable throughout the day that give you blood sugar balance which is really what you're looking for in pcos as well as keeping you satisfied and providing you with an abundance of antioxidants which help 
with managing all manner of different issues associated with both fertility and PCOS. Um, so egg health, age-related egg decline, keeping the DNA intact, and also improving your sensitivity to the hormone insulin, which is often responsible for uh, too much insulin can often be the thing that's responsible for the ovulation problems, as well as the weight gain, as well as the sweet cravings, the mm-hmm. carbohydrate cravings. So I kind of see it as an all in one bonus that all these things help with, um, and numerous things associated with PCOS as well. We've seen that pulse-based diets. Um, so legumes and beans like lentils, chickpeas, kidney beans, black beans, any, anything that falls in that category. Um, we've shown that for women who consume more of those foods with PCOS, they have better hormone profiles. So better, lower testosterone levels, better insulin profiles, better cholesterol, um, and therefore uh, ideal, therefore that colludes to better fertility, mm-hmm. right? Mm-hmm. So um, we've, seen, we've shown that pulse-based diets work. We've shown that antioxidant, um, high antioxidant diets work. We're starting to show that Mediterranean diet strictly works, um, but the, the research definitely new. Um, I've definitely seen it in my practice as well, but that's just the, that's just the foundation. So there's not just that, so I should continue. Um, there's also um, the proteins, the other proteins of choice are seafood and fish. Um, and so they will be able to provide you with omega-3 fatty acids, which I talk about all the time because um, I think they're definitely the unsung hero um, in the in all diet all diets um, and all medical conditions can probably benefit from more omega threes, but mm-hmm. especially PCOS and fertility. Again, it helps with egg health. It helps with insulin sensitivity again because it has an anti-inflammatory action in the body, and we know that. Couples who eat more seafood have a shorter time to pregnancy. So couples who had um, seafood twice per week versus those who had it less than once per week um, were, I think, conceived within... it was, wasn't a huge difference, but it was a shorter time to pregnancy. Um, and it also, they had more sex. So I think that hence, hence why the sh- shorter time to pregnancy kind of makes sense yeah. statistically. <laughs> um, so it's important to look at the other factors in Absolutely, these papers too. Yeah. <laughs> Holistic factors. Okay, cool. What about for people who are preparing for fertility treatment? So yes. they've been trying naturally for a while and for whatever mm. reason, they're moving on to fertility treatment. Any key thoughts or facts you might be able to give people around how they might be able to make sure they're giving their body what it needs? Mm. I think the number one thing I really advocate for all my clients and anyone out there, whether you're at that point where you're thinking, okay, I've been trying naturally for a while and it's not really going to plan. I think I need help. Um, or to those people who are even before that and are thinking, oh, I'm going to start trying soon, but I feel like I need to do something like more official before I just, you know, start trying. Like, like what, like, like surely there's some, there's some, there's some hoops I need to jump through or something. And I'm like, well, not really, but I mean, I understand where you're coming from. They're like, I feel like I need to prepare in some way. Um, So to those two groups of people, I really encourage you to go and just do some 
you know, preliminary blood work. And the reason being is most women don't get enough iron in their diet and most women don't get enough zinc in their diet. And most of us are pretty vitamin D deficient, even here in Australia where there's Mm. lots of sun and everyone thinks we have some pretty strong sun rays down here. So a lot of us are covered up and um, wearing sun cream all the time. And uh, we all work sedentary jobs indoors where we don't really get that much sunlight. So vitamin D tends to be an issue. And so just get the bare basics picture of what your nutritional status looks like from your blood work. Mm-hmm. and have an idea because if you are on the back foot to start with with your nutrition going into conceiving let me tell you it should you get pregnant it only gets worse mm-hmm. <laughs> and on that note is um also other things to think about is nutrition related health conditions um so celiac disease is one of those so um that's an autoimmune condition where our the body cannot Um, tolerate any gluten because it causes physical damage to the body and it's hard like I mean in Australia at least it often goes undiagnosed Um, but one in 70 Australians at least will have celiac disease yeah so celiac disease can be a contributing factor to both male and female fertility problems and it can be a, a risk factor for miscarriage as well and so before you go on any crazy diets and cut out gluten and, and, and do all that kind of stuff, I really just encourage you, if you haven't been screened, if you've got a family history, um, both you and your partner can go and get that checked and make sure that that's not part of the picture because if it is, um, yes, a diet can literally fix it, which is great news, um, but it does take time. Uh, for your intestine to recover and therefore absorb all the nutrients and therefore restore your fertility, if that makes sense. That makes Um, sense. Yeah. So I think just ruling out, um, you know, if you've got any funky, weird things that you've kind of been neglecting for a while, like a lot of my clients have some upset tummy kind of issues. Like they're like, "Mm, not sure if I've got irritable bowel or maybe something else is going on. And, you know, I'm the first one to be like, okay, off to the doctor, let's get all these testing done, make sure that we're not missing something um, that, you know, you could be going through rounds and rounds of um, IVF or other fertility treatments and you could have missed something with your own health in the, in the mix of that. So, yeah, I think just getting the baseline and then working on the basics of nutrition from there. So, you know, yes, rectifying any nutritional deficiency with the dietitian is obvious, but getting enough fruit, getting enough vegetables, making sure that you're eating omega-3 rich fish like salmon or mackerel or trout or sardines a couple times a week, making sure you're not drinking gallons of or litres of soft drink or soda or um, making sure you drink water, making sure you exercise. You know, sometimes, yes, it sounds very basic, but the, we know that in general our population doesn't do well with these basic health and nutrition recommendations. Yeah. And, yeah, we could totally get way more specific than that and be like, hey, guys, you know, eat 60 grams of walnuts per day to boost your sperm health. And, yes, there's research to say that. But if the fundamental part of your diet is not the benefit of that is probably not as good as it could be. Um, So I think 
baby steps start small. Um, but if you're really struggling with that implementation, like, you know, you should be eating your fruits and veggies, but you don't, you don't know how it's going to fit into your day or you're just really struggling with that practical application. That's, that's the time to really get some help from a professional. Absolutely. And with all that advice, thank you. Is there any sort of limit to how much you should be having of those things per week or per month? Or is, is it kind of like the more, the better? It's, it's a tricky situation because yeah, I could say the more, the better, but there's always someone that takes it to the nth degree. So um, I like to say, look, Ideally, it's a couple serves of fruit, so two servings of fruit per day, which is roughly a fist-sized portion, five to six servings of vegetables a day, but you can go more than that if you like. We know that there's benefits up to 10 servings of vegetables per day. And again, a serve is a fistful of cooked vegetable or two open palms of raw salad vegetables. Um, Look, yes, there's, I guess, limits because at the end of the day, if all you did was ate fruit and vegetables and drank water all day, you wouldn't be getting all the nutrition you need because you need to get proteins in and dairy in and grains in and all the other stuff that gives you a whole nutrition profile for what you need. So the the fact of the matter is eventually you'll displace something. So I think um, I was referring more to oily fish because... um, Oh, yeah, great question. I saw um, a nutritionist whilst uh, we were on our fertility path um, mm. before having IVF. I made sure that I was following a very healthy, I wouldn't say diet, I'd just say nutritional mm. plan for mm. at least three months leading up to IVF to try and boost my egg quality. And I remember being told that there is, there is something around potentially not eating too much oily fish but obviously mm-hmm. having enough. So I'd love to mm-hmm. get your take on that. Yeah, so there is, um, I guess, a question around contaminating fish, especially larger fish. Um, so the larger the fish gets, the more contaminants that they can accumulate in their body, which once you consume, obviously you've consumed. Um, so I always recommend people to avoid any kind of fish that's rich in mercury or suspected to be rich in mercury. So um, shark or flake or marlin, like very large kind of fish. Um, And I also recommend that, you know, tinned fish is great. And there's a couple of potential issues with tinned fish, one being the BPA lining that often lines the tins, which isn't ideal um, from a fertility angle, but also the most, at least here in Australia, most tinned fish companies use quite small fish now, um, so they have less chance of mercury. But You're talking about tuna. Tuna, yeah. Yeah. Yeah, so tuna in particular, but also salmon. Um, fish like sardines, which are small, I wouldn't be too concerned about, and they tend to be the biggest punch in terms of um, omega-3s. Um, but yeah, I think the piece, I think what a lot of people get concerned about is the contaminants or the accumulation of a, of something called PCBs. Um, and I think that is a valid concern, but I don't think the benefits of eating it two to three times a week outweigh that cost. Um, so yes, don't probably don't have it every single day, five to seven days a week. Um, and most of that being from a can, like canned mm. salmon or canned tuna or canned everything, um, try and get a combination of sources. Um, 
But yeah, I think it's definitely valid to look at contaminants for sure. And just like it's valid to look at food packaging, but I think there is a, there's a limit to it as well, because we want to make sure that the recommendations are simple and safe. Yes. But we also don't want our recommendations to be adding unnecessary stress to people who are already stressed. And expense as well, because living a diet like this can be quite costly. I know Mm -hmm. from experience. So I guess um, also just leading on from that, wondering your thoughts around, and forgive me if this is the wrong term, but fad diets, keto, Mm -hmm. carbs, um, Mm -hmm. preconceptions people might have around those things, going gluten, Mm. that kind of thing. What's your Mm. take on that? Yeah, look, I sit in the camp of science and um, right now the science doesn't really indicate that any of those strategies work or work better than another strategy so right now as the science stands there is no one best diet for PCOS right now so you know one person may work really great on a Mediterranean diet like I spoke about before lots of fruit and veg and nuts and seeds and legumes some fish some yogurt some eggs some chicken some cheese little bits of red meat and sweets and lots of water That works great for client A over here, but client B over here actually needs, um, she's running marathons. So Mm. I actually need her on a higher carbohydrate diet, Mm. otherwise she'll fall over before she hits the finish line. Or client over here actually needs to gain weight. So I actually need them on a slightly higher fat diet because I need them to gain some weight so that their body fat percentage is optimal for ovulation. So because it's a syndrome, no two women come, come the same. And so because of that, no one diet fix, fixes, again, uh, that word, but no one diet solves all problems. Um, and so that's actually where a professional comes in and says, hey, you know, this might work for you and this might not work for you. But what, instead of just saying that, and I mean, that's a pretty stock standard answer that you probably get from 90% of dietitians, is I want to talk through about where the evidence is at right now for diets like ketogenic diet and gluten-free and dairy-free. So you can, again, make an informed decision. Um, So first things first is ketosis or nutritional ketosis or being in a state of ketosis, which just means that your body is not using carbohydrate it's using a different source of energy which it makes out of necessity because of restriction of carbohydrate in the diet to less than a traditional ketogenic diet is less than 20 grams of carbs a day and to put that into perspective that's like one and a half big bananas or half a cup of rice so across the whole day yeah so not much um at all so that's a traditional ketogenic diet and the rest of the diet is made up predominantly of fats um and small like not not heaps of protein so a lot of people do this much higher protein version of ketogenic diet um what that i've come across at least um but it's actually meant to be quite a high percentage of of fat in the diet 
just yeah. to clarify, what kind mm. of fats are you talking about when you say high fat diet? Ah, <laughs> uh, so everyone takes this differently. Yeah, exactly. The interpretation. <laughs> so I've heard different terms, which I don't like using this terminology around food, but I've heard clean keto and dirty keto before. Uh, so clean keto is you're getting your fats from, you know, your avocados and your nuts and seeds and your extra vegetable olive oils and olives and less so your cream and your butter and your bacon right. and your lard and things like that. Mm-hmm. So I recommend typically that people who are trying to conceive to reduce their amount of saturated fats, which are from those foods I just mentioned, and increase the healthy fats. So depending on how you're doing it, yeah, there's differences. Um, The study that was done in women with PCOS, they studied 20 women and they put them on a ketogenic diet and they restricted them to... um, Oh, sorry, 11 women. Sorry, not even 20 women. 11 women. They restricted them to the 20 carb, twenty grams of carbs per day and they followed them for 24 weeks. So that's pretty much six months, which is yeah. a long time. <laughs> a I long add. time, yeah. A long time. And they did show that the women had improvements in hormonal parameters, weight, testosterone, and insulin. But the caveat was that six women dropped out and so they weren't able to complete the study and the data was analysed for five people. Right. So not a lot of people. Yeah. And also I would probably hazard a guess that women, the five women who signed up for a ketogenic diet study were probably going to do it anyway. So, um, and that was published back in 2005. So it's quite a long time ago now. So it's even outdated research. I would hazard to say it doesn't mean it's an it's it's an ineffective diet um but the other problem i foresee is is that keto ketogenic diet is not recommended in pregnancy mm-hmm. and so because of that we need to transition you off as soon as you are mm-hmm. pregnant mm-hmm. and then you for a lot of women they just rapidly gain weight in their pregnancy because yay, I got to the end goal, which is pregnancy for a lot of people um, or baby, ideally, but pregnancy. Um, And they're like, oh, okay, I I did all that hard work, got pregnant, amazing. Um, Now I can eat whatever I want. Or they don't have any other strategies to eat well or manage their weight throughout their pregnancy without this level of rigidity and structure. Right. So... Um, what I foresee happening is women not being able to manage, maintain, maintain. Um, and then similarly, it's not really recommended in breastfeeding either. So I don't know. I, it's nothing. I've never put anybody on it. Let's just put it that way. Okay. Okay. (laughs) Um, yeah. And I just think it's a matter of compliance. I think if you are gung ho, you're like, you know what? I just, Nothing has worked. I really want to Mm. give this a go. I think it suits me. I'm not a big, you know, I'm not really into carbohydrates, which I've never met a woman with PCOS who doesn't love carbohydrates because your body is literally screaming for them. So (laughs) it's a special kind of punishment you're putting yourself through. Yeah. And so like, I would rather somebody come to a professional, even if I know I'm saying I don't really support it, but I would still rather a woman come and sit down and say, Hey, I'm still thinking about it. I'd like to give it a go. Do it under the supervision 
of a doctor and a dietitian that you trust because it's better to do it supervised and if something goes wrong or a nutritional deficiency comes about or whatever, somebody's there to help you. If you mm. go it alone just because, you know, it's unsupported, I feel like that's worse. Like I would rather, even if I don't support it, I'd rather help someone. Absolutely. Yeah. 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 That makes complete sense. Well, yeah. thank you for your honesty around it. And um, oh, my pleasure. Um, and what about organic versus non-organic food? Any mm. studies around that or importance around that? I think this one plays more of a role f- um, from the evidence in terms of endometriosis. So okay. endometriosis is a whole different kettle of fish, but um, I do have a, uh, quite a number of clients who I see who have both PCOS and endometriosis. So uh, statistically... Uh, p- uh, possible, but not necessarily super common as far as I know. Um, not that I see a lot of research being published about women diagnosed with both, but I do, I do see people with both. And uh, with endometriosis, it, there is some evidence to suggest that the pesticides on food um, may play a role in perpetuating the disease further. Um, so for those women... Um, it is a factor. However, I don't make it compulsory. So I don't say you must go organic or else. Like, I just don't think that's practical. A, it's super expensive. Not everyone's in that position to do that. And I don't think it's the most important thing you could do. Um, I mean, if you've got prioritize prioritize you know like that's like the bottom of my list kind of thing um it like there's so much more to do like if you're if you're fussing about you know organic bacon but you're eating you know a kilo of bacon a week yeah. like yeah i don't care if it's organic i just yeah absolutely maybe it's just in excess bacon. yeah yeah yeah, <laughs> yeah. <laughs> and, uh, or like i don't know what's another example that i could give or you're eating organic um potato crisps um you know cooked in avocado oil but you're eating a bag a day mm. um but you're buying conventional spinach or i don't know something else um so sometimes like people just focus too much on the detail. Okay. Yeah. <laughs> I, I feel like we just got to zoom out a little yeah, bit. Like yeah. if you had a camera lens, like zoom out a little bit, just look at the big picture. If that's what you prefer. Amazing. If you can afford it, great. It might make a difference. It probably won't. You know, I think pick your battles. I think that's one of the smallest battles. Um, Absolutely. I don't, I don't think I get that. I, to be honest, in clinic, I don't get that question anymore at all. I think yeah. there's been enough media to show that conventional versus non-conventional produce um, has negligible differences in nutrition. I think it only comes into play with um, yeah endometriosis patients. Okay, okay. Mm. thank you for that. That's great. Um, and then the second part to today's podcast is mm. around nutrition, um, especially after miscarriage. And mm. obviously people have this horrible guilt that they can sometimes feel about, was it something I did? Was it something I didn't do? And um, that is just not the case. But I'd, li- I'd like to get your thoughts and perhaps hear some inspiring stories of clients you've worked mm. with who have had 
success or something's changed for the better following a very difficult time, such as a miscarriage. Mm. Despite hearing about pregnancy losses almost every single day, every time I hear about it, it kind of, it kind of just hits me again, like how devastating it must feel for a couple trying to grow their family, um, things to end in loss. And um, one of, you know, I, I, I try and provide some level of support, but of course I'm not a mental health professional psychologist or anything like that. Absolutely. So I always offer that kind of support. And um, we have this really great support network here in Australia called the Pink Elephant Support Network. And I always refer my clients to, to their resources as well. But I just remind patients that, um, you know, one in four pregnancies do end in miscarriage it's 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 not uncommon it's just not spoken about and that doesn't make it any less difficult um but I think it can be such an isolating experience for so many that knowing that they're not alone and like even just maybe hearing that I I hear it almost every day that um that um about miscarriage in their history and so 50% of miscarriages occur because of chromosomal or genetic abnormalities. Um, and the remaining 50%, I, I guess, is kind of the unknown. Um, but I would say the large majority that I see that they find out a known cause are generally chromosomal or genetic um, causes. So um, there's been some mutation in the in the kind of string of DNA, um, which has made it unable to progress. Mm. Um, which is always uh, difficult to hear, but also statistically probable. So um, this is, it's, it's almost never anybody's fault and it, it, it never really is. It's never anybody's Absolutely. fault um, that this has happened. It's nothing you ate. It's nothing you did. It's nothing you, it's nothing, it's nothing that you did in your power that could have um, conspired to a, a miscarriage. Um, so what I would say is that yes, there's some things that you can do from a nutritional standpoint in preparing for another pregnancy after a miscarriage. Um, there's obviously no surefire way to prevent a miscarriage. If, if, if we knew that no one would, would experience the the suffering. Um, but, Often I find a lot of women do come and seek advice about diet soon after a miscarriage or after experiencing uh, multiple miscarriages because they feel like it's something that they can take control of or they can they want to be reassured that it wasn't something that they ate or didn't eat that con- conspired, mm. um, which, of course, it never is. Mm. Um, but the things that I do in... I do encourage women to refocus on when they're ready. And obviously in my office, they're ready, but um, it does take time to get to a point where, you know, you stop eating the ice cream and, and all the, you stop eating your feelings and um, start to, to refocus on the future again, which of course everybody takes time. Yeah. Um, the grieving process, of course, it's really hard yeah, at that point to yeah. main, maintain something when you're in the, that very difficult headspace. So I guess people totally. need to be mentally um, prepared and ready to move on mm. to um, doing something, something to help them feel better. And I think it's that desire to 
regain a little bit of control over their situation and most people turn to their lifestyle when they are looking for that um and i think it's a it's a gentle opportunity to look at things again and um of course i encourage them to go and do all the tests that we just discussed because yes. especially post miscarriage there can be um, um, iron deficiency as a result of blood loss of course so um, iron deficiency and iron deficiency anemia can be really important things to screen for and rectify um, there is some evidence to show that severe anemia can impact fertility but it's only been shown in in mice um, the studies in humans show that women who take iron supplements tend to have better ovulatory fertility. So they're less likely to have anovulation or missed periods. Um, so iron is definitely something that I really try and focus on. Again, the omega-3 fatty acids and avoiding those high toxin kind of fish um, species, um, getting lots of colourful fruit and vegetables, which I know is not comfort food, um, but getting lots of antioxidants into the diet. Um, and this is great for both eggs and sperm as well. So making sure that that sperm has as little DNA damage as possible. Um, as well as the egg and protecting the the both of those from mm. any kind of free radical damage making sure that they're on the right prenatal supplement that's yes, working for them yep to support um, the body at the same time yeah so it's yes there's obviously losses um in the process but also um there needs to be re like restoring that um and making sure that we're on the right thing that works for them. So for example, fol folic acid versus folate tends to be a very popular topic of conversation now. So folic acid is the supplement form. So the form, uh, at least in Australia, we have it in our bread um, mandatory. So it's mandatory to go into all of our breads and flours and all that stuff. So folic acid is the form that is in your, typically in a supplement and also in the bread. But folate, which is just a different form of the same vitamin, um, is found in your green leafy vegetables and your legumes and beans and fruits and things like that. And so for some people, some women um, and men, to be fair, um, they are unable to really activate that folic acid into that activated form of folate. Um, and this is the enzyme is called MTHFR, which sounds like an acronym for something very rude. And that's how I remember <laughs> it when I was studying it. Um, but um, MTHFR has a really important role in, in taking whatever your prenatal is giving you or bread is giving you folic acid and, and, Activating it into folate, which then goes and does the work in the body to protect the genes. Now, okay. if you have a mutation where the enzyme is dysfunctional or has a reduced capacity to do conversion of that um, folic acid into folate, then we might have a problem. So it's very difficult to order testing of this, at least here in Australia. Some doctors are really good about it, but a lot of them wait until there's recurrent miscarriage, which is three or more in a, 
in a year, I believe. Which is um, so, so tough to have to go through, isn't it? Just that, oh, again. I, again. Just, I just feel like it's a, it's a swab of the mouth. Mm. Um, surely we can be initiating mm. these tests after Absolutely. just one. I feel like one is more than anyone who needs to suffer through Absolutely. in their life. Um, but let's, let's do everything we can for these people who have suffered. Yeah. And I mean, I think it's, it's something with, it's a part of the picture. It's not everything. Um, but for a lot of women who have experienced a miscarriage or a loss, um, they are hyper, what I call hypervigilant or really cautious about possibilities that could be affecting them. So, um, there's a lot of prenatal supplements out there that contain the activated form of folic acid, which okay. is just the same as long as you're getting the right dosage yeah. that works for you. Um, and there are as well, which I don't think a lot of people know, there are situations, medic, medical situations, which are quite common where actually in the first 12 weeks and preconception, you require more than what is stipulated for folic acid. So um, some examples are if you have pre-existing diabetes, if you have um, inflammatory bowel disease like Crohn's disease mm -hmm. or ulcerative colitis, mm -hmm. um, if you um, at a certain body weight uh, because there are more cells in the body, there's a higher demand for folic acid. So um, this is where really getting a nutrition professional to evaluate your situation and yeah. tailor your dosages of supplements and foods appropriately and the forms is actually really key. And this is not, unfortunately, information that is often delivered um, to people when they're first trying. Okay. Uh, and as you said, so importantly before, every mm. person is so different that it's not so like a blanket different. rule of take this, take that. That's why people should seek their own consultation, have their blood work done, etc., to see what relates to them specifically mm -hmm. and like i said with with miscarriage like some people like we've already talked about celiac disease and mthfr so there's some medical conditions that can be screened for um other conditions can be thyroid conditions um from a food and nutrition perspective some people are like oh steph i kept having three coffees a day do you think that did it i read mm. somewhere that that coffee can cause spontaneous uh, spontaneous miscarriage and you know there is some evidence. Do I think that is the cause? Probably not. And I think the stress of beating yourself up about one coffee, extra coffee a day is probably, yeah, worse for your body than the coffee Absolutely. was. Absolutely. Um, so my recommendation is always one to two cups of like espresso-based coffee per day. Or I know you guys in the UK love your black tea. So four cups of tea um, is the best is the best recommendation that we have because that's what we recommend in pregnancy. So that's what we recommend preconception. Okay. Um, and the same goes for the men because I get women messaging me all the time being like, tell my husband or tell my partner that he can't have that much coffee either. Um, um, so yes, yes, that is true. You need to, yeah. you need to both be on the same page with that. Um, and they're similar with alcohol. Like, yes, we know we should minimize alcohol, but we've all heard the stories of people who, you know, had a big night the day before they found out they were pregnant and they were six weeks or whatever. So, you know, 
like I said, it's probably nothing you did that caused that event. Is it a good opportunity to take stock and reassess your diet? Sure. Um, but don't beat yourself it, up about it. For what's but don't beat yourself. That's Absolutely. Right. I completely That's agree. Right. But your, your words of wisdom and your advice are, are really helpful and, and insightful. So thank you so much. Um, My pleasure. And I guess last thing is just sort of whether you can give people the confidence or the hope or the inspiration that you've seen clients personally where mm. these, these changes have led to success. Mm. Yeah, I'd love to tell you actually a story and obviously these names are not their yeah. real names, yeah, uh, obviously for confidentiality. Uh, but I had a lovely client of mine called Erin and she was 36 when she came to me and she um, was living with her husband and she'd been trying to conceive for about three years and she had both PCOS and endometriosis and she had a history of miscarriage and um, some chemical pregnancies over the past 18 months. And I remember her coming to my office after work because I see people quite late at night after work. Um, so they don't have to take any more time off for fertility appointments because I know that's a big, that's a big struggle. Yeah. Um, yeah, dumped her bags, dumped her bags on the floor and kind of slumped in the chair. And she was just like, Oh my God, I'm so confused. (laughs) And she was just absolutely frustrated to see everybody around her, friends, colleagues, falling pregnant so effortlessly. And she was completely stressed by the nutrition messages she was getting on social media, you know, gluten-free, dairy-free, soy-free, sugar-free, whatever free just so overwhelmed um, overwhelmed trying to do everything feeling rubbish uh you know just absolutely struggling um she's already had implemented some of those things that she'd read about so she'd already gone gluten-free and dairy-free um and she had implemented some more natural things in her home like cleaning products and personal hygiene products and I'm sure we all know kind of which book that comes from. Um, But she was really trying to minimise her environmental exposures to things like BPA and phthalates. Um, But I think in her particular circumstance for Erin, she it was actually increasing her anxiety because she was realizing mm. like how dominant like plastic is in our society, in our modern society, and how it was absolutely everywhere. Anyway, she was very diligent and had done all her blood work before she came to see me um, and everything looked pretty good. Um, she had a few liver enzymes that were a bit off um, and some of her inflammatory markers were high, but un- not unusual in endometriosis at least or even in PCOS there can be some inflammation going on. Um, but her blood glucose levels, her insulin levels looked great, her hormones were great, her thyroid was normal, her husband's semen had checked out. So we were like, okay. So the history was that she was on the pill for 10 years before she tried to conceive. Um, She was taking metformin for her PCOS, which um, is very, very common. Um, She also was taking a prenatal and a number of other supplements, zinc, vitamin D, CoQ10, and a probiotic. And she was also doing acupuncture quite regularly as well because she read that that might help. Um, she'd struggled with her weight for a while. She tried lots of diets in the past, shakes, um, different, um, 
meal plans, at home plans, training programs, apps. Um, she just couldn't find anything that would work for her long term that she could stick to. And she was actually taking weight loss medications at the time um, and she was transitioning off um, and was terrified about regaining the weight that she had lost, but she was not allowed to take this medication when trying to conceive. Yeah. Um, so she was gluten-free, lactose-free and soy-free four weeks before coming to see me and she was just finding it incredibly hard to maintain. She absolutely loved to cook. She's a great cook. Um, her diet was pretty nutritious. Um, she did have the afternoon sweet tooth situation. Yep, where the and cho- chocolate comes out. Yeah, yeah, and her work environment definitely didn't help. Um, she avoided all alcohol, all caffeine. She admitted she doesn't drink enough water um, and she tends to eat out of stress, like she tends yep. to stress eat. So looking at her diet, I could see that there was a few areas to improve. So um, increasing her plant-based proteins from legumes and beans, um, increasing her oily fish and seafood were our first kind of ports of call. Um, in terms of exercise, she was doing some Pilates and some gym classes um, a few times per week. What she really wanted to do was um, swim, but it was too cold in the winter. So after our first appointment, we set those two goals of legumes and oily fish and seafood. And she came back a few weeks later and she'd absolutely smashed those goals. She had up the legumes significantly, up the seafood. And I was, you know, really impressed. And in that first appointment as well, I told her, I think it's time to unfollow some of those unhelpful social media accounts. So then the next kind of goals that we looked at were nuts and seeds and fruit. And we talked about why that these were important. Healthy fats were important for hormones and nuts were providing her some extra zinc and other nutrients that we knew were important for um, both PCOS and endo and just fertility in general. Um, Then we looked at increasing her fibre as well from whole grains and fruits and veggies and all that good stuff. And then at this time I said, look, there is, she was, she was a site like at her core, like even though, It was her stress and her anxiety that fueled her social media, like a little bit of addiction to follow all these fad diets. And she was thinking about keto and all that kind of stuff. And I said, um, look, here's here's the truth. There's not one study that has researched gluten in PCOS. Um, So if you don't feel any better going off it for the last, you know, four or five weeks, I don't see why... We need to keep it out. Does the same apply for dairy-free as well? Because I've heard that full yeah. fat can be quite good for fertility or is that, is that the yeah, case? That, yeah, so there's the largest study that we've done, which isn't the best quality study, but the number of people enrolled in the study was in the kind of tens of thousands. So um, we kind of give it more credit because of the number. Um, So tens of thousands of people in this study, everybody versus the five people that finished the ketogenic diet. Let's just just balance that out. Um, So that was the nurses health study in the US. And they showed that women who consumed full fat dairy over light or skim had better fertility outcomes in terms of ovulation so it's just an association we think it's probably due to fat soluble vitamins and vitamin d and things like that but 
that was the that was the association. So I told her about this, and I also told her that there's no study showing that dairy free is going to work. There's small amounts of evidence for acne, which can be a symptom of PCOS, um, but again, the quality of the research isn't amazing, and uh, most people can't actually. Uh, get the calcium and the other nutrition that dairy provides from other foods without, again, another supplement, which, yeah. I mean, for this woman, <laughs> I was hesitant because there was already so much going in. Going they on, all yeah. start to compete against each other and they don't really absorb and all sorts of things. And it's like you're taking a supplement every one hour. So <laughs> we looked at liberalising the diet for gluten and dairy because she really didn't feel any different. Any benefit. Okay. Any benefit. Um, the soy we kind of had a chat about because there is some evidence from an endometriosis perspective that it might not be the best, but there's actually a benefit including soy in PCOS. So her particular scenario was very tricky because it helped one thing, but it potentially hindered another. Right. So we looked at her diet and there wasn't any major sources of soy. Like she wasn't a vegetarian eating tofu and she wasn't a drinking soy milk or anything like that. So, um, she was only really looking at the minutia of, you know, soy traces in, in products that she was avoiding. Yep. So I said, look, there's no need to be that strict, but you know, don't go and eat 25 slabs of tofu in the next week and we should be fine. Um, but if you want to have some every now and then it's not going to be a big deal. So the other thing was that the medical team had put a massive focus on her weight and that she needed to reduce her weight. And this was very anxiety inducing for her. Um, How much did they suggest her losing? I don't think numbers were really thrown out. I think in her mind, her goal was kind of another 20 kilos. Okay. Um, she was going to go for surgery for endo and then start to try and conceive naturally. So okay. there wasn't really enough time mm. to really pursue that amount of active weight loss. And for me, I could just see that the level of anxiety for her around her weight was so incredibly high that I just felt another person adding to that would be harmful and we weren't going to measure her. We weren't going to even talk about it really. It wasn't going to be a metric that we, we measured or used to define our success. We actually just used, um, her dietary quality. So what she was able to improve in her diet, how she felt, how she slept, um, and her period, basically, and how regular her period was, which there was variability in that. So, um, and understanding her appetite signals working on her afternoon snacking. So, within about three months, Erin um, conceived naturally um, after her laparoscopy, of course, and endo excision and all that. So, I don't want to discount the medical things that happen behind the scenes and the Absolutely. metformin and all the things that happen behind the scenes and baby aspirins and all that stuff. Um, but yeah, it was definitely along the lifestyle management as well. So yeah, I was really happy when she let me know that she was pregnant, um, but it came along with a whole another wave of anxiety because of the past miscarriages and, and things like that. So it was a lot of um, counselling and support and management and then transitioning into more pregnancy nutrition um, as well. So yeah, I really loved the, the 
that part of my job is like, yeah, I'm pregnant and oh my God. But then it's another like wave of different kind of anxiety of, oh crap, what do I do now? I don't know how yeah. to eat as a pregnant lady. Yeah. So, um, and, and also nervousness around miscarriage, especially for people who oh, have been in that situation before. So yeah. thank you so much for sharing that story. Hopefully that oh, will um, inspire others that they're, you know, things can turn around for the better. Um, yeah. And yeah, thank you so much for talking to me today. It's been great to chat with you. Would you like to let everybody know about how they can contact you? Should they want to have a consultation or speak to you about anything Mm. further? Yeah, for sure. So you can find me on social media on Instagram at the underscore dietologist. Um, So spelled D-I-E-T-O-L-O-G-I-S-T. And my website, thedietologist.com.au. I post blogs about fertility nutrition almost every week Amazing. and you can also download my free preconception lifestyle checklist for men and for women on my website or instagram as well um i also have i have lots of free things for everybody so i've <laughs> they're all free so um my blog and my um lifestyle checklist is free and you can also join my free fertility friendly food facebook group which is for women trying to conceive and that's open globally and i post um free tips in there as well and you can also ask me questions directly in there and yeah if you want a consultation i do consult online globally and you can book via my website again the dietologist.com.au amazing thank you so much they sound like incredible resources so thank you very much stephanie and speak to you soon thanks eloise bye-bye Thank you.